back to the Point of Order podcast, an inside look at California politics in the state legislature. I'm your host, Assemblyman Josh Hoover, and I am joined here today uh, with my co-host, Greg Wallace from Assembly District 47. How's it going today, Greg? Very well. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your district and your background and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so the 47th district uh, was recently elected in November of 2022. Uh, It's Palm Springs, Coachella Valley. Um, I go down the 10 Freeway West, Banning, Beaumont, Calamasa, Yucaipa, and then we go up the 62. I have Yucca Valley, Joshua Tree, Joshua Tree National Park. So gorgeous Beautiful district, man. Yeah. Love it, man. Yeah, I was actually just down there recently, and we uh, we checked out your district a little bit. I haven't spent much time there, so it was really nice. It's a good spot. I hope you uh, made it out on the golf course. We got I, about I 130 of them. <laughs> I did. Actually, I did. It was uh, – I, I can't say my golf game was as beautiful as your district, but, uh, you know, I did my best. Yeah, uh, you, you and me both. <laughs> so what what about you? Like, what was – what's your background? Like, kind of what were you doing before you came here, and what made you want to run for the legislature? Yeah, so, you know, I'm uh, originally from Silicon Valley, Saratoga, California. Um, met my now wife when we were in high school. We both went down to Los Angeles area for school. Um, I studied political science at California Lutheran University. Showed up late to college Republican meetings, so they made me the president. <laughs> and, you know, I've been uh, – been involved ever since. I started working for uh, Assemblymember Jeff Gurrell, Senator Tony Strickland, and then Assemblyman Brian Nestandi actually about a decade ago awesome. brought me out to the Coachella Valley. Yeah. I was working for him, uh, worked for my predecessor in the district office for eight years there. And, you know, I'm, I'm 33 years old. My wife's uh, 33 as well. And just we were getting real frustrated with California. Too many yeah. of our friends and family were leaving the state for, you know, better opportunities. And these are people with good jobs, totally. you know, good careers. Yep. But the opportunity just wasn't here in California. And so, you know, we said, well, we can do that. We can leave the state as well, or we can, you know, try and do something about it. So that's, awesome. um, that's when we made the decision to offer ourselves up to serve and, you know, pull, pulled off a race by 85 votes. So. <laughs> that was one of the craziest races, I think, in California history. So congrats on that win. Uh, 85 votes. I know it went back and forth like what? eight times. Oh man, it was, it was wild. That was nuts. It was crazy to watch. Um, but no, really glad to have you up here. Um, I think you, you're actually, you're not the youngest member of the legislature, but you're definitely the youngest member in the Republican caucus. I'm the second youngest. So we kind of, <laughs> yep. I think I was the youngest for a week. You were. And then uh, when I won my race and then you won a week later. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, <laughs> sorry to take that away hey, from that's you. That's all good. It's all good. <laughs> but I, I love seeing the energy and just having some, uh, some new millennial representation up here in Sacramento and, um, you know, really just fighting for the state that we love. I think we're, we're both on board with that. I mean, you talk to pretty much anybody, uh, they have a similar story on the, the folks that are actually leaving California, right? Like uh, I've had friends that have left because they just want to buy a house and they can't afford one here in California, right? I've had friends leave for better jobs. I've had friends leave uh, because they're retiring and they just can't afford to retire in California. Yeah. I mean, really across the spectrum, um, you know, you, you hear these stories all the time in my district. Yeah. So. I mean, we have an affordability crisis in California and, you know, this isn't something, I mean, California is the land of opportunity. We have the ability to, um, you know, provide, I would argue, the best quality, highest quality of life in the country for yep. people. But, you know, some of the policies coming out of Sacramento are just uh, driving up costs and you're seeing that people people are leaving. Yeah, absolutely. So so how have you enjoyed, I guess, being a new legislator and and, and like what's your experience been so far? Yeah, I mean, you know, I tell everyone there's pros and cons, right? I mean, (laughs) um, obviously, we're um, in the Republican caucus here. There's 18 Republicans, there's 62 Democrats. And so 
sometimes it can feel like you're hitting your head against the wall. But, um, you know, at the same time, uh, the ability to, you know, be engaged in these policy discussions that impact yeah. your community and um, being able to just provide real results for uh, your constituents and, and your community members is something that, I mean, is, I absolutely love it. So Totally. Like, I think um, just having a voice in the process, uh, especially in my district where, you know, so I represent Folsom, Citrus Heights, Sac- uh, Rancho Cordova here in Sacramento County. And uh, it's a district that I went to school in. Uh, I grew up in. I went to, you know, community college and I met my wife in, right? So, I mean, it's just really cool to be able to um, go back to your community and hear what's going on and then come to Sacramento and actually have a voice in the process. So, uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. That's that's awesome. So, so uh, usually, we'll get into it now. Usually, we start with, like, recapping the week before. And so, um, there, there's been a little bit going on <laughs> in the last week, uh, to say the least, um, we got past the House of Origin deadline, which I discussed with Vince Fong on our pod last week, and we, we broke that down. Uh, so it's been, a le- I feel like, legislatively a little slower over the last week um, because we're kind of transitioning now to um, uh, setting up committee hearings for all the Senate bills, and, and we're going to start getting into that very soon. Um, but uh, there was an interesting kind of kerfuffle in the press uh, last week Um so Governor Newsom announced his uh, 28th Amendment proposal on guns, which we can chat about briefly in a minute. But um, I think the the assembly member that's going to carry that bill, Assemblyman Joan Sawyer, uh, went out to announce it or something like that. And uh, uh, Ashley Zavala, so, uh, Ashley Zavala uh, tweeted this. She's a member of the press corps. Uh, the assemblyman carrying Newsom's gun control constitutional amendment actively avoided me at the Capitol today. I was standing next to a reporter who was going to interview him. His staff told me he had to go to the bathroom and left the building. And then another member of the press uh, uh, tweeted about how, like, he wouldn't allow her in the huddle or anything like that. So I just think it's they have this little rivalry going on right now. Um, and Ashley is a really hard-hitting reporter, right? Like, she's not... She doesn't go soft on anyone, right? She goes and asks the tough questions of everyone, which I think is really important um, on both sides of the aisle. But uh, I just, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to see this uh, th- this uh, press issue going on. Yeah, no, I mean, I followed that on Twitter as well, and you know, I I guess we probably walked right past it when we were leaving Florida yeah, that day. Yeah. And I, I wasn't aware of it until I saw it on Twitter, but. I mean, that is one thing that's been surprising as a new legislator, how much secrecy there can kind of be around some of some of the dealings and, and whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we, we have a responsibility to talk to the press. We have a responsibility to make yeah. sure our constituents and Californians know the work that's going on in their government. And so I, that that was disappointing to hear. And, um, you know, also, I think we need to just uh, applaud the rest of the Capitol Press Corps for, for sticking with Ashley on that one. Yeah, for sure. No, and I think that's like... You know, I mean, the press's job is to hold us accountable, right? And, um, you know, it's not always, um, especially when you're getting criticized or you're, you know, under a lot of scrutiny, it's not always a fun thing as an elected member of the legislature. But the reality is, is that we have to have, you know, that open dialogue and and, and they have to be able to keep us accountable. So, yeah. Well, I mean, that's right. Isn't that like one of the basic tenets of democracy here is, totally. is to be able to have the press corps keep us accountable. And I, I think it's fair if we disagree on issues and, you know, maybe maybe we're not always going to see uh, the same solutions to the problems Californians are facing. But, um, you know, to not to not talk to people and to not, yeah. um, you know, 
inform our citizenry where we're at on things. Yeah. Like, oh, man, that's I know it's tough. It's tough. It's interesting. So did you did you take a look at this proposal, this 28th Amendment proposal? I did, yeah. So just, just for the listeners, uh, and this is from the governor's website, so the 28th Amendment will permanently enshrine four broadly supported gun safety principles into the U.S. Constitution. This is, again, from the governor's press release. Raising the federal minimum age to purchase a firearm from 18 to 21, mandating universal background checks to prevent uh, truly dangerous people from purchasing gun that could be used in a crime, in instituting a reasonable waiting period for all gun purchases, barring civilian purchase of assault weapons that serve no other purpose than to kill as many people as possible in a short amount of time. So um, this is, again, that's from his press release, but I thought this was really interesting. Obviously, I feel like it's a media, you know, he's obviously trying to get out there more, and this is going to get him more into the national spotlight. Uh, but, um, yeah, did you have any initial thoughts on it? Well, I mean, yeah, let's call it what it is. This was a political <laughs> stunt. I mean, California has some of the toughest gun laws on the books, and we're still seeing um, yeah. gun violence happen in our state. Absolutely. Our, uh, you know, our Republican colleagues uh, authored actually some pretty common sense proposals to to address gun violence, and yeah. we couldn't even get them through committee. So, I, you know, this is just one of those things where our, our governor really likes to chase the headlines. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to I'd encourage him to focus more on some of the real policy work at home um, totally agree. And that we're doing in this building. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and, you know, to your point on the legislation, I mean, our state seems to be very focused and excited about gun control, but a lot less focused and excited about gun accountability measures for people that commit crimes with guns. You yeah. know, and I think that's I think that's what's getting frustrating is you can have, you know, the strictest gun laws in California on the gun control side. But if you're not holding people accountable on the public safety side, on the criminal justice side, um, I think you're going to continue to see gun violence no matter where you are. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I appreciate that um, there's obviously a bipartisan desire here. Yeah to, you know, help reduce gun violence. For I, sure. I have yet to meet a member who's supportive of gun exactly. violence. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I do appreciate, you know, bringing, bringing that up, uh, that issue to light. But I think, uh, you know, if we actually want to make an impact, we need to stop with the rhetoric, stop with the political stunts yep. and actually, totally. actually get into some, some good policy. Absolutely agree. Uh, but so I guess the, the other big question then is, does this mean he's running for president or? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you we'll know, find out. I guess we'll find out soon enough. I think, uh, I think there's been there's been a lot of chatter around that issue. Yeah, exactly. I, I think time will tell on that, so we'll have to wait and see. Um, we and we don't normally get into national politics on this podcast, so we won't we won't go there. But I just think it's it's kind of funny to see him um, seeking the national spotlight the way he is, um, and it I think it raises questions for sure. So last week we had uh, quite a quite a bit of activity. Um, on the floor, and, and we don't have to get into all the details of what happened, but there was certainly some some drama between the Democratic and the Republican caucuses uh, on the assembly floor. And uh, so our Republican leader, James Gallagher, and the Speaker of the Assembly and the head of the Democratic caucus, Anthony Rendon, put out a joint statement uh, on some of the activities that went down last week um, regarding civility on the assembly floor. I'll just read the statement here and then we can discuss it. But it, uh, the statement is there is policy and there is propriety. As the leaders of our respective caucuses in the assembly, we certainly don't always agree on matters of policy. We do agree that the long and honorable history of our house demands that we voice our policy differences directly and with decorum, not with personal attacks or technological stunts. 
As legislators, we should expect more of our colleagues. We call on all members to respect one another and keep the bonds of peace and civility. Um, I just kind of want to talk to you about, and we don't need to get into the details of what happened, but just more about how important civility is in the legislature. Because I actually think the statement was was good. I think it was good that they came together and put this out together um, because it really shows kind of a joint commitment to that, a bipartisan commitment to that. But I just feel like, you know, we've been staffers for a long time. I want to get back uh, before this job. I want to get back to the days where you could disagree on policy and then actually still have, you know, good relationships with people on the other side of the aisle. And I feel like we used to do a better job of that in the legislature um, where we could leave policy disagreements on the field and actually, you know, still have real interpersonal relationships um, and I feel like in this age of hyper-partisanship that we've entered into, I feel like in the modern era, uh, in the last few years, that we are uh, we're kind of losing that. So. Yeah, no, I think it was a, a great statement. I'm glad that uh, leaders of both parties came together to, uh, you know, just a, a good reminder. Um, obviously, the national temperature in, in the political world right now is uh, heating up. But I think really Americans, Californians, like they're 100%. They want us working together. They sent us up here to not play games and, you know, do all this political stuff. They want us to solve real problems for them. And, you know, whether it's a Republican, Democrat or independent idea, as long as it's, I mean, you know, neither party has a monopoly on good ideas or solutions. I mean, you're, you're a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus with me. That was one of the first things I did when I came up here, joined the Problem Solvers Caucus, bipartisan, bicameral group. We want to make sure we're, uh, we're focused on doing the real work. And, and I I think that, you know, it's easy to, especially on the floor, um, we're passionate about yeah. um, some of our ideas and, and a well, lot of the okay. things we're working on, yeah, and that's okay. It's okay to be passionate. But we, but... But we need to make sure it's not personal <laughs> and, that, and we remain civil. And, I, and So I, I was very appreciative of that statement. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, and, and I think I, I agree with you, too, about I think the majority of Californians, regardless of what party you affiliate with. I mean, there's a reason that no party preference is kind of one of the faster-growing political parties, right? Yeah. Uh, because... I think the parties are going more to the fringes, and it's important. I, I think people just want to see you get stuff done for your district, for California. You know, yeah. So. Look, when I go back to the district, I fly home every weekend, yeah. um, and you know, talking to people in my community, they're not concerned about what happened on you know one of these news national news channels right, or, or right. what they're hearing. They're concerned about whether or not they're going to be able to put food on the table, pay yep. their rent, fill up their gas tank, and then maybe have, you know, a little extra money to take their kids to see a movie on the weekend. Like those yeah. are the issues that are, 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 you know, top of mind. Totally. And so yeah. this partisan gamesmanship doesn't do anything to make uh, our constituents lives better. And I think that that's, that's our job. That's the focus. And we need to make sure uh, we're going to continue to do that work. Yeah. I know you're committed to it as well. So Absolutely. I appreciate you for no, that. I, I think it's, uh, I think it's important, and uh, I'm hoping that we can bring some of that civility back, um, you know, and uh, I think I think overall we've been doing a pretty good job, but, it, you know, it's it's always nice to be reminded. 100%. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but good segue on the mentioning the problem solvers, because there was actually a great article this week uh, in the Modesto Bee on uh, the title is, Some California Politicians Actually Work With The Other Party Instead Of Smearing It. And it's kind of along the same these same lines, right? Um, where it's it's an article that kind of highlights the problem solvers caucus. I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but I did. I saw it. Yeah, I thought it was great, you know. And it really get it dives into what we do, you know. Really, our focus as uh, 
trying to find bipartisan solutions to some of our state's greatest challenges. Uh, I think that's easier said than done, but it's important that you see a group of 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats, which is what the caucus is made up of, uh, come together to actually at least attempt to do that, right? Now, we've got 120 legislators in the Capitol, so, you know, that's not a huge percentage of the legislature, but to have 20 members committed to bipartisan solutions I think it's really important. So what were your thoughts on the article? No, I mean, it was a great article. And I I think obviously the Problem Solvers Caucus is doing great work. I mean, the reality is we all represent different areas. We have different challenges and we all come from different backgrounds. And so when we're looking at tackling some of the issues that um, Californians are facing, it's nice to be able to just sit down and have those sort of civil conversations with someone who may have a completely different viewpoint from you. On how we, mm-hmm. you know, on how we solve those problems, and so I, I, I think it's, uh, it's great that it's getting highlighted. I, I think the Problem Solvers Caucus is growing. We have uh, even more interest. I'm hearing from new members wanting to join. So that's, yeah, that's no, positive. It's, it's good, and I hope we can continue to grow it and grow the influence of it because I think it's, uh, it's going to provide a really important balancing factor in California when you do have, I would say, policy that leans in a certain direction uh, pretty strongly. I think. California or just any state, but policy is better when there's more balance, right? And yeah. I think this will be an important part of that. Well, you're back. You, you were yeah. on a school board, right? I was, yeah. And yeah, so, you know, one of the things that I always find super interesting is, but you look at these local governments, and yeah. they don't they don't run with a, a letter after their name, right? There's not a public party affiliation there, and so you totally. do really have problem solving happening on yeah. in these. And uh, you got to nice. run on your ideas, exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Which uh, you know, I, I do think we tend to rely too heavily on, you know, the letter next to your name. But it's important that, you know, we have good candidates with good ideas, right? Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 inter- it's it's a very different running for local office because it's just you have to campaign completely differently. I mean, you have to talk to your voters completely differently um, because, you know, everyone is uh, it's it's just a nonpartisan thing. Well, know? I mean, so. yeah, I think you said it beautifully. You have to you have to actually run on your ideas and, <laughs> and you have to govern with the. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so one thing that the article highlighted um, is one problem we've actually solved so far, and I know that there's more to come, but uh, last year's budget allocated $40 million for floodplain restoration along the San Joaquin River west of Modesto, which is kind of what interested the Modesto be in this article, I think. Um, and then the governor actually clawed that money back in January in his budget plan, and then um, the Problem Solvers Caucus really stepped up and... Um, sent a letter um, asking that that money be, you know, restored, and Mm -hmm. and it was. So I think, um, you know, that's just one example of where I think we can have a major impact on really big issues um, uh, that actually affect real Californians. So, Yeah, I think we had every member of the Problem Solvers Caucus sign on to that. So Republicans, Democrats, Assemblymember, Senators coming together and um, actually delivering real results for Californians. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's what that literally is what it's all about. So. Uh, really excited to be a part of that with you, and I think um, excited about things to come on that. Um, so we'll shift gears to our second segment, which is kind of looking ahead at what is coming up in the in the next week uh, and the next month. Um, and not a ton to discuss this week, but the big one this week, obviously, is the state budget deadline is on June 15th, which is this week. Um, there is uh, supposedly a deal worked out uh, by between the Assembly and the Senate. Um, now, we, we haven't heard yet how the governor feels about this deal. By the time this podcast is published, maybe the governor will have put something out. But um, I think at this point, 
you know, uh, one of the big uh, sticking points uh, is Newsom wants to pull back more than $2 billion that was previously promised for local rail infrastructure. Uh, and then certain legislative uh, Democrats uh, wanted to reject that, but also proposed an additional $1.1 billion over the next three years for uh, from cap and trade funds to help cover transit agency expenses. Um, so transit has kind of been this interesting sticking point. Um, and, and as you know, I mean, if you've uh, been reading the articles lately about BART and about a lot of the transit agencies across the state, they're, they're hemorrhaging riders, they're, you know, losing money like crazy. Yeah. Um, they're just not sustainable. And I will say as someone who was a, a daily transit rider, um, for about 10 years of my career, um, there was a dramatic shift after, like from COVID right. to now. Um, before COVID, you know, those the train that I rode here in Sacramento County was commuting hours, completely full. You couldn't find a parking spot. You know, you had overflow parking because, you know, the trains were so full uh, where I live. Um, you ride it today. I mean, I rode it maybe a week ago, because um, I didn't have my car. Uh, my car was in the shop, and nobody's on that train. Why is that? There's parking everywhere. Well, I, that That's a great question. And I've actually asked my transit agencies that, right? Like, yeah. how do you explain, you know, the drop in ridership? Now, I, I can tell you why I think it is. I mean, I think the reality is, is that um, – well, number one, people love car, their car, which is understandable. I love my car. <laughs> but, um, you know, number two, um, I think COVID really changed how people interacted with transit because you had about a three-year period where you had to mask. So even after, um, even after they lifted mask rules, like in a lot of places, transit kept them, at least in my county, for a long time. And I think it just got to the point where it's like, I could drive in my car without a mask or I can, or I can ride transit with a mask. Like, mm. you know, I think some of it was that. Uh, you've also seen uh, remote work explode, right? So all the commuters, right? Sacramento is a government town. They have a lot of government workers. And when I used to ride the trains, I, my guess is it was mostly filled with government workers. A lot of those government workers have now gone remote. I'm sure that's the same in the tech sector and different areas in San Francisco or the Bay Area as well. And then the third thing is that I don't think we focus enough on making transit actually attractive to ride. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, you 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 have really, in a lot of cases, dirty trains. You have um, homeless individuals that are not being, you know, uh, checked for tickets. Um, you know, so you have people riding the trains that don't have tickets, but it's not being enforced. I think, you know, and I've been saying for years to my Democratic colleagues – on the other side of the aisle, that I am not anti-transit, but we have to make transit attractive to riders. No, I 100% agree. I mean, when transit works, it's fantastic, right? You go back to D.C. and yeah. you want to take the metro to get around. I mean, yeah. it, it works um, beautifully. But, you know, also, like, to, to your point, if the ridership experience isn't great, well, people are going to look for other options. I think we also need to have a conversation about really just what the future of transportation looks like, right? I'm on the transportation totally. committee. We've got, you know, bill after bill after bill. And some of the things that, you know, are, are exciting to me potentially or yeah. is the idea of these autonomous vehicles. I mean, yeah. I, I, I could see a future where uh, no one, we don't even own cars anymore. We've just got like an app and I pay a thousand dollars a month to 
<clears throat> you know, Ford or whoever it is. Totally. Yeah. Hit a little button and the car shows up, picks me up, and it's like an Uber. I mean, if that's... I bet there's people listening right now that that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> but, like, yeah, I, that well, sounds awesome to me. but it's awesome a conversation. I don't know. Uh, and my, my son, my oldest son, wants to, like, when I was a kid, all I could do was think about getting my driver's license. He wants nothing to do with driving. He just wants really? to hit a button. <laughs> And have a car drive him somewhere. Yeah, I remember. And my, I just think uh, it's so funny. My 16th birthday fell on a weekend, and I wanted to get my driver's license on the exact day, but I couldn't. I was couldn't, like two days late, and, and I was killing. Oh you. man, yeah. it was brutal. My poor mother that weekend. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, th- I think that is. I, it's it's just an appropriate thing for the yeah. legislature to discuss and look yeah. at. So obviously, transit's not going away. We want to make sure that we make <clears> this ridership experience something that um, you know, yeah, people are going to use. Um, but when we're talking about making these large infrastructure investments, we need to, you know, be cognizant yeah. that there's technology totally. and technological advances that may change how transportation works in California. Well, in a billion additional dollars to bail, you know, it's kind of a bailout, right? right. To bail out transit agencies, I think I think taxpayers are going to have some fair questions about whether that should happen or not. I mean, you know, the reality is that if transit is going to work, it has to be relatively sustainable. For it to be relatively sustainable, it has to attract actual riders. And if no one's riding it, you know, there's, I mean, transit doesn't have a purpose really, right? So I think these transit agencies need to figure out, you know, how do we actually increase ridership and encourage ridership um, without uh, forcing transit on everyone, right? And I think that's kind of the challenge that we're facing in Sacramento is we see a lot of kind of, I think legislation or bills that kind of push this idea that we need to just get rid of cars, you know, and get rid of roads and everyone rides transit. That's just not feasible and it's not realistic. Uh, we need to allow people to, to you know, commute how they want to commute. And for a lot of people, if it's welcoming, that's going to be transit. And for other people, it's going to be roads. Yeah, but I mean, in my district, be, you know, transit doesn't make a whole lot no, of sense. No, it doesn't, absolutely. It's not developed yeah. for that. And, um, you know, we have folks who are dependent on their cars for their careers and yeah. jobs and getting their kids to school. And so totally, I think this, you know, too often we like to take these one-size-fits-all. I shouldn't say we, not you and I, but the legislature <laughs> right, likes right. to take this one-size-fits-all <laughs> approach. And, yeah. You know, I like to, you know, for my district, I've got like sort of three separate sections there. What's good for the Coachella Valley isn't necessarily yeah. what the pass area needs and not necessarily totally. what the high desert needs. And so we need to make sure that when we're looking at, you know, transportation in, in the future that um, we do allow local control and local governance to, yep. to sort of lead the way on absolutely on what communities are asking for and how they want to move around. Yeah, I think the last thing we need is Sacramento telling you uh, this is how you have to do things, right? Yeah. Uh, because every community is different. We we live in a very diverse state um, geographically. And, um, you know, so I just, I, I, yeah, I definitely don't want to lose that aspect of it, though. Uh, and I think the future of transportation, to your point, I mean, is super exciting. And the idea of autonomous vehicles, I think, is really going to change the game. And I think it's important that we don't kind of lock ourselves into what transportation looks like today. And we actually allow ourselves to think about the future and think about some of these problems that technology is going to solve. I mean, we're going to have, you know, when we talk about the environment, right, we can have clean roadways with clean, you know, emission-free vehicles, autonomous vehicles that are transporting people. Roads do not have to equal, you know, environmental harm. 
in the future, right? Exactly yeah. so right. No, I think exactly that's right. the you know. Uh, so we can't we can't get rid of the roads. I think is my point. <laughs> well, and I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, right? This, the market's going to decide here. Californians totally. are going to say this is what we want to yeah. use. This is how we want to get around. And yep. so the legislature needs to be cognizant of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Let people have choices. Absolutely. So uh, the the last thing in this segment here for looking ahead, uh, I guess it's somewhat. Um, of an announcement of what happened last week, but we put forward a bill. A number of uh, folks in our caucus put forward ACA 12, uh, which would um, essentially, I would say, crack down on people that deal fentanyl in our communities, uh, allow prosecutors to warn them um, that if uh, they deal fentanyl, it results in a death, that they will go to prison for a very long time. And I think it's it it's uh, this fentanyl discussion this year has been multifaceted, right? And I think we've gotten a lot of bills passed on the education side. We've got a lot of bills passed on the uh, you know reactionary side, meaning you know uh, requiring Narcan, for example, right. in schools to respond to overdoses. All of that is good, and I think there's I'm happy to see there's been bipartisan support for that. Where we ha- where we've had hangups is the accountability and criminal justice side. Um, accountability for dealers that are trafficking this stuff into our schools and our communities. So uh, you were at the press conference. I just want to, you know, what were your thoughts on ACA 12 and do you think it's going to get bipartisan support? Yeah, I mean, that's a a huge part of the equation, right? On the accountability side, we haven't done enough this year to address it. And I think ACA 12, um, you know, is is a good first step. It's still not enough, but I I mean, we're talking about, you know, this really it's a poison that's in our communities here. And these aren't, you know, the drug drugs of the 80s and, right. you know, 90s. This, this right. stuff's really scary. We've got kids in our communities, 4.0 students, good kids who maybe made one bad, bad choice. And I think even uh, one of the parents who spoke who lost a, a child said, yeah, okay, I admit my child probably made a poor decision in uh, yeah. trying to get this uh, prescription drug off the streets, but that one bad choice shouldn't have been a death sentence. Absolutely. And so that's sort of the work that we need to make sure um, yeah. you know, we're doing. We're, and we're going after really holding the dealers accountable. They know that they are counterfeiting these pills to look like other drugs yeah. that have this poison in them that you know one pill can kill people, right? So I, I thought... Uh, you know, I thought it was really great uh, that we brought this issue to light. I think we're going to see bipartisan support on it. And ultimately, you know, this is an ACA. We're taking this to the voters. Let's exactly. let Californians weigh in on this issue. It's too important to just move on or push down the road. Yeah. And I think that's the important difference with this proposal versus some of the other ones is that we're just basically saying, let's give the voters a choice on this. Yeah. Uh, and Assemblywoman Diane Dixon and Assemblymember Joe Patterson, who's been on this podcast as well, uh, are taking leadership on this issue, and I'm really thankful for their leadership. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, yeah, I, I I really hope, I know there are people on both sides of the aisle that support this proposal. I think the big question is, can you get it out of the committees that it's going to go to, to actually get it to the floor? Because I think if this got to the floor of the Assembly or the Senate, it probably would pass. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, that, <laughs> so, that's the challenge we've had with all these fentanyl bills, right? Getting so through the committee process. I mean, I don't know if we want to talk at all about that little wharf play from a few weeks back. Oh, sure. But, I mean, yeah. Um, maybe maybe there's an opportunity to do something like that for those folks listening. Wharf means without reference to file, so it's sort of a procedural play to try to skip the committee process. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> 
which, you know, isn't how we want things to operate. Like, we want to have a discussion about this in committee. We want it to be heard and we want it to get voted on and hopefully passed. And I think something as simple as this should fly through committee. But, you know, for some reason it's running into resistance because I feel like there's this misconception that fentanyl falls into the category of like what, like you mentioned, what these war on drugs were for so long against marijuana and some of these other um, substances. But it's fundamentally different uh, from the standpoint of when a child purchases or a student or, you know, whoever it is, uh, purchases uh, the drug that we're referring to here, they don't think that they're purchasing fentanyl. They think that they're purchasing something else, and yet they're getting deadly fentanyl. And I think that's that what makes us fundamentally different. Than well, and that's the, the difference in the, the approach we're taking, right? right? We're not trying to criminalize addiction. We're not trying to go totally. after people who would better be served, um, you know, in in rehab or, or or some other service. We're going after dealers who are intentionally selling a basically knockoff or, or I like I mean it's poison. Yeah, and they're poisoning our communities. I totally. think that's appropriate for us to be able to say, hey, you know, on the public safety side, we really do need to hold these people accountable. Yep. Get them off of our streets. Totally. And so I, I, I agree with you. I think you'll see bipartisan support on this one, and I'm hopeful that uh, the California yeah. voters will pass this. Yeah, no, uh, really looking forward to seeing how that turns out. Um, moving ahead to our third segment here, we do some sometimes we just do something just for fun. Uh, I wanted to. Are you? You're an Apple guy. Are you an Apple guy? I'm an I meant Apple to guy. ask yeah. you before this. Actually, I should have asked. I know you with all the talk you guys had about. Uh, <laughs> The Google guy in your office. I mean, geez, I know, right? I yeah, my chief of staff uh, refuses to buy an iPhone, and it's a constant point of contention in our office because <laughs> uh, our our whole text thread is green just because of him. Yeah, know, so. no. <laughs> we've got that same problem with the caucus thread. Like, yeah, we have some members that are on the. Well, you know this this podcast is not sponsored by Apple, but uh, I wanted to talk about. Did you see the announcement of this Apple Vision Pro? This uh, spatial commute computing device. I, I saw it, yes. And, and I, I kind of was checking it out, and I was kind of, like, blown away by it. But I wanted to see if you think this thing's actually going to be a thing or if it's going to be a flop. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it seemed cool to me until I saw the price tag on it. And yeah, I was no like, kidding. wow. So for anyone that ha- didn't see the announcement, Apple unveiled this, like, it almost looks like a virtual reality thing, but it, you can actually see through it. So it's like a augmented reality sort of headset. And uh, it's thirty five hundred dollars, and it would um, it kind of like puts your screens into the space in front of you, so you can actually interact and engage with um, the computer, almost like Iron Man. Like yeah. I feel like it's very Iron Man vibes when I saw it. You can like grab stuff out of the air and move it, and you know do all that good stuff. So I don't know. I th- I. I think it's super cool, but yeah, like I'm not going to drop 3,500 on on the first generation product. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll see how it plays out. I don't know. I still, uh, I, I don't know that I can envision a future society where we're all walking around with you know those <laughs> the sort of augmented reality goggles on. But hey, who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Well, it seems like though it would be something like instead of a desktop computer or a laptop, you just have it at home and you like, or like you have it and you just throw it on your face. I mean, would we be doing this podcast with these on right now? I know, that'd be kind of cool. That's where you're we could like notes from. Project like that would be pretty cool. I'm not gonna lie, but then we would look really silly on YouTube. I mean, what do you uh, think? Like maybe on the assembly floor, instead of having our iPads in front of us, we're all just we're wearing just all our wearing the, the, and... the headsets. I don't know. I mean, I, I I agree with you. I think it's it's weird to envision that future. 
But I also thought the iPad was done when it came out. And that's like, maybe that's a bill idea. I, maybe maybe you move uh, <laughs> move us away from iPads and get us onto the Apple goggles. There you go. Right. I'm like, but seriously, when the iPad came out, and I, I'm a huge, uh, just full disclosure, I'm a huge Apple fan slash nerd because, and my dad, uh, he worked at Apple and uh, for his most oh, okay. of his career, cool. so I was kind of brainwashed from from a very young yeah. age. But he started at Apple in two thousand one uh, when the stock price was eighteen dollars a share, and he likes to say that you know as soon as he started, you know there, things really skyrocketed from there. But it also happens to be the year they they released the first iPod, so <laughs> you know it's like it's tough to say what it was. It's tough it's, to say, right? No one like, can be certain there. <laughs> But, um, you know, he's since retired, but uh, just, you know, the iPhone, I mean, Steve Jobs, I've read, you know, Steve Jobs biography, I think he's really fascinating, you know, person. Um, But just uh, so many times where I've just like Apple just convinces you that you need something that you never knew that you needed. Exactly. <laughs> right. And like whether it's the iPhone, whether it was the iPod, whether it was the um the, the iPad, Apple Watch when the Apple came Watch. Out. It's like I mean so many times I have been so wrong about this stuff. So, you know, where I'm just like, oh nobody needs that. And then like a year later I have one, right? And I love it. Well, so. yeah, my wife uses her Apple Watch all the time. She's, you know, high school teacher, and Mine she too. can control all the music. She, yeah. she, like, runs her world. It's super from, cool. It's pretty yeah. neat, so. No, I don't know. So we'll see what happens. I, I love to see Apple release a new product, but um, I'm not sure I will be an early uh, user of this product, mainly because I can't afford it. I mean, I uh, still read, you know, paper newspaper, so I'll probably <laughs> so be late is, to this party. You're going to be a little late to the yeah. party. <laughs> but you let me know how it works all out. Right. Sounds good. Well, um, we're going to do one last segment here, our clip of the week. So just to set this up a little bit, um, Governor Newsom did this really highly anticipated interview with Sean Hannity at the governor's mansion. And so I wanted to just play a quick clip of that and then kind of get your thoughts. So uh, let's play this. In 2021, California had 7.8% of GDP, GDP growth in this country, one of the fastest growing economies anywhere on planet Earth. This state continues to be the tentpole of the American economy. 25.6% of all American jobs came from this state in April. In the last two fiscal years, we enjoyed $177.7 billion in operating surpluses. We're on our way to be the fourth largest economy, eat your heart out, Germany, in the world. Number one in R&D, venture capital, more scientists, researchers, more Nobel laureates, more patents emanating out of this state than any other state in America. With all due respect, Florida doesn't even come close. Eat your heart out, Texas. California continues to be the dominant economic engine for the American I promised you before this interview I would let you give full answers. That's a full answer. Thank you. So uh, I, I watched that interview. I actually thought it was refreshing to see, you know, two strong personalities from, uh, you know, really yeah. kind of opposite sides of the political spectrum sit down and have a conversation. I was appreciative of, you know, both John and the governor for, for being willing to do that. I think we do need to. And it was a civil conversation for the most part. Yeah, no, yeah. I think it's fantastic. I mean, we should be having these conversations yeah. about the things we disagree on. And, you know, I, I agree with the governor in certain regards here. California has a lot of things going for it. We're doing fantastic work when it comes to, um, you know, a number of uh, number of the issues he listed. But I think as you just tweeted out, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's also important to remember we have the highest poverty rate, second highest unemployment rate, 30% of the nation's homeless, yep. we're 50th in lit- literacy, we have the highest gas taxes, and we're 46th in road quality. <laughs> There's more work to be done, yeah, and, a I, don't, lot more work to and be done. I don't think that we should shy away from that work yeah. and just paint this, you know, so yeah. like have these like rose-colored, you know, glasses on and just say everything's great here in the Golden State totally. because the reality is 
um, too many Californians are being left behind and too many, uh, too much of that is because of policy failures coming out of Sacramento. Yeah. And I get the governor's job there is to defend his state. And like, you know, it's kind of the, you know, back and forth interview, right. With the people with different ideas. Right. And I do appreciate his willingness to go on to share, you know, these views in the public square. I think these are the conversations that we need to be encouraging and having. But yeah, it is interesting what, and, and, and by the way, to be fair, uh, you know, it's funny since the interview to see out, because if you go to like Sean Hannity's Twitter account, you see all the kind of, uh, you know, clips from when Newsom uh, said something, you know, he was challenged on homelessness and he, yeah. and he, you know, had to take responsibility for that. We have the highest homelessness rate, the highest homelessness population in the country and that those kinds of issues. And then you go to Newsom's uh, Twitter, and it's like all the stuff where he feels like he crushed it, right? So to be fair, I pulled this from Newsom's Twitter account, not from Hannity's, um, because I wanted to point out that this is obviously the governor, uh, you know, defending California, what he believes we're doing a great job. But the problem is, as you just mentioned, you know, and I, I did, I tweeted out some of these statistics. I mean, we have, um, I mean, just start on the top there, the highest poverty rate in the entire country you know, Wall Street might be doing really well. Silicon Valley might be doing really well. But everyday Californians aren't necessarily feeling those results, right? And I think that's what um, – and second highest unemployment rate. So, you know, I think it's it's easy to point at California as kind of like tech or business, big company like power uh, because that really does – thankfully, we still have a lot of those great companies. Yeah. But what about everyday Californians? What are they feeling? And I feel like they have a slightly different picture of what California looks like right now. Yeah, I mean, we're a diverse state, obviously, and we've got, you know, 40 million people. Um, but we're losing Californians, right? For how many years in a row now have we oh, actually yeah. had? Net, mean, net uh, migration, negative, yeah, just losing Californians. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but we actually lost a seat in Congress for the first time in history, because yeah. we lost so many Californians. Yeah, and I think that's just, you know, people voting with their feet. And, you know, obviously nobody wants to leave California. We've got the best weather. Oh, We've got, yeah. you know, all sorts, no of, all sorts of positives here. But at a, at a certain point, if you can't afford to live here and you can't, um, you don't see that opportunity anymore. I mean, people used to come to the Golden State, right, for opportunity. And now they're finding better opportunities in other states. And that's something that we can't, you know, just stick our head in the sand on. We have to address that. You've got folks, I mean, this is... The entire reason I ran for office was because too many Californians are leaving, um, and I think we, we yeah. can do a better job. So I, I, But I do really just want to emphasize how important I think it is to, for the governor and for Sean Hannity, from folks who see the world differently, to have these conversations mm-hmm. um, and really expose maybe – I don't know how many Fox News viewers watch Gavin Newsom or hear a lot of what he has <laughs> to say. So maybe to just yeah. understand where he's coming from on things. I think Senator Tim Scott did something similar. Uh, oh, he went on, on The, the View. View recently. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. And he responded to some of the, I think, criticisms that they – and I thought that was a great conversation too. I, I, I do have to commend Tim Scott and Gavin Newsom for, for doing that because I think we need more of that. Yeah, I uh, think it's really easy for us to just kind of get in our little echo chambers and totally. we can you know, sort of self-select news that yeah. or television or programming that agrees with our worldview – and I think exposing uh, ex- exposing ourselves to you know a different way of thinking is only a positive. It can only be helpful. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, it, it was an interesting conversation. I mean, to get back to those statistics that you cited, I mean, thirty percent of the nation's homeless. I mean, homelessness is what I hear about most in my district all the time. 
probably homelessness and roads, to be honest with you, are the two yeah. things I hear about the most. I have some of the uh, Sacramento County has some of the worst roads in the state. The state has some of the worst roads in the country. So my district is definitely suffering. And yet we pay the highest ta- gas taxes in California and we get the least in return. I think that's why people are frustrated, too. It's not just that their roads are bad. In addition to that, they pay the most for them. So it's like if I'm going to pay the highest gas taxes, I better be getting the best roads. Well, I mean, isn't that one of those things that (laughs) sort of, I mean, you've been around for a while. I've been around doing this for a while now. And it's frustrating to me because it feels like every time we go to the voters and we say, hey, we would like more money for water infrastructure. We would like more money for roads. We would like more money for schools. California's like, yes, we want to, uh, you know, we want to fund those things. Yep. Yeah. And then we increase tax or increase a cost somewhere and we don't ever see the results or we don't see the results how we would like to see them. And so I think that's, you know, actually yeah. one of the reasons we need more balance in this body totally. when we can provide some you know, accountability and oversight um, when, the, when, when there is a, a better balance. Well, and to your point, it's not you know, money is part of the equation, but it's not the answer to all of our problems. Like more funding is always kind of the mantra that's given as what we need. But we've increased education funding in California by over $60 billion in the last decade. uh, And we're still 50th in literacy. We have eighth graders after COVID reading at a fifth grade level. Uh, I mean, we are, we are like, our our kids are suffering. Uh, Our students are suffering. Our public school system is uh, in in so many of the categories, math, reading, you know, it is uh, near the bottom of the list. And I think, I think our residents deserve better. And it's not because we spend the least, by the way, it's, you know, it's policy. It really is. And um, that's the problem. So anyway, no, I think that's a good point. I mean, you know, you do hear that all the time. Um, You've I'm sure you meet with just as many folks as I do uh, over across the street in the swing space there, and everyone comes in. They say, well, if we just had more money, we could get this done. <laughs> exactly. We had a $98 billion surplus last year. We've, we've invested heavily in yeah. a, a lot of these areas, and we're just not seeing the results. In that. And Exactly. And Californians are rightfully frustrated. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, Greg, uh, I'll let you get out of here. Thanks for joining me on the podcast this week. Do you have any final thoughts for the good of the order? Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Awesome. It was fun. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. So a couple quick announcements. We, uh, You can follow the podcast now on Apple Podcasts. It launched last week on Apple. So uh, speaking of Apple, you know, go there and uh, hit follow. Um, new episodes release every week. You can email us at pointoforderpod at gmail.com if you have any ideas uh, for topics on the show. Um, you can watch and subscribe on YouTube or follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Point of Order Pod. And you can follow today's hosts on Twitter at uh, I'm at Joshua underscore Hoover. And then Greg is at Greg R. Wallace, I believe, on Twitter. Uh, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S. Greg, thanks for coming out and uh, look forward to having you on again. Thanks a lot, Josh. Appreciate it. See you later.